morning, everyone. Okay, so we're, at, we're in a four-part series on the, the church, how to church. So I wanted to give kind of an overview of who the church is, who are we, um, and tell a little bit of the story. But first of all, I want to start with the history of the Holy Spirit and his dealings with human beings on this earth. So let's start right from the beginning. Page one of your Bible is Genesis 1.1, right from the start. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, this is the image that we get right off the bat of the Holy Spirit. He's hovering above, hovering above the waters. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this kind of concept of this hovering above, and every once in a while, he comes down and enters someone, or he enters a place. So we see Holy Spirit hovering above, and he comes into Moses, and Moses spreads his arms out in the Red Sea parts. Or we see the tabernacle established in the desert, and Moses going in there, and we see the presence of God and the Holy Spirit coming down in that place, but he seems to go back up again. Or the dedication of the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple, it filled the place, but it didn't stay like that for, for a very long time. It seemed to go up back again. So we have this concept of an, although God is obviously omnipresent, but this hovering above, and it comes down when it needs to, right? That's the picture we get of the Holy Spirit. And then we see Jesus, and I love this wording, how the Bible just gives us these little hints of things. But God had a conversation with John the Baptist before he came to say, look, you're going to know he is the one who's different than anyone who has ever been on the earth before because of something. And he gives us a hint on what that is. Here, um, we're going to read in John 3, starting with verse 29. The day that he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize, that's God he's talking about. He's referring to this conversation that he had before all of this. He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He didn't tell him, the one who you see the Spirit come down on. That's happened before. That's not unique in human history. He says, the one who you see the Spirit coming down on and staying, remaining in him, that's what's different, and that's how you'll know that he's the one who was to come, right? It remained on him. First time in human history it ever stayed, that the Holy Spirit came down and he stayed. And so for the next three or so years, um, we get to see what it looks like for a, a, a totally indwelt by the Holy Spirit human being walk the planet. So we know the story. He's crucified. He rose from the dead, and he ascended back into heaven. So now what? Is the Holy Spirit back in the hovering mode? Because we had him here in the body of Jesus for a, 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 some time. But right now, what's going to happen to us? Is Jesus just gone back, and is he going back into hovering mode? And we see what the answer to that in Pentecost, okay? We're going to go to Acts chapter 2, 
starting right from the beginning. And this is a long one, but just listen to all the stuff that's happening here. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, referring to these 120 people who were followers of Jesus, who had seen him resurrected and were waiting in Jerusalem. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. So we see the Holy Spirit come down again on 120 people in a tongue of fire. So the question is, is it going to stay? My question, at least. Okay, so after that, we know the story. What happened is, okay, this tongues of fire came. There's all kinds of people in Jerusalem. There's this noise like a rushing wind up in this upper room, and people heard it, evidently. So they're looking up there. Then all of a sudden, these people start running out of this room, and they're talking, and they're proclaiming for the first time the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm coming from like some far, way far away. I don't speak Hebrew as my natural language, but I'm hearing this in my own language. And so is everybody else around me. This is a very strange event. And so people are hearing that the, the reality of Jesus being di- died and having been raised from the dead. And now he's somehow in these people and they're t- telling me about it. And this Holy Spirit is working on me as well. And it's in their, the response to this is in Acts 2, um, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, up to this point, kind of comes when it wants to when he wants to, upon certain situations. But now this thing is, this unbelievable thing has happened where now all you have to do is ask for it. (laughs) All you have to do is repent of your sins and be baptized, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit will be given you, a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is, I'm going to refer to the Holy Spirit interchangeably. I'm going to use the term divine life. The life of God is available to all of you, and all you have to do is repent and, uh, and receive it. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls to them. Now watch what happens. This new life enters into these people. Watch what they do. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship with one another, to breaking of bread and to prayer. They seemed to go together. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together together, and had all things in common. This is a fun thing to hear about. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just, just so we know, this is our heritage. This is day one, and that divine life that entered them in that day 2,000-some years ago is the same divine life that's in us. So here we go. History of the Holy Spirit again. Just recap. Hovering throughout the whole time of the Old Testament and visiting. Enters Jesus and stays. First time in human history that's happened in that way. And then Pentecost, he comes, and then all of a sudden he's available for all who ask, and he's staying again. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We are, you're a zookeeper, okay? Yeah, you're a zookeeper. A new animal is entering your zoo, and you are tasked with creating a habitat for that animal. 
But what are some of the questions you're going to be asking? I can hear. What? What's it, what's it like to eat? That's a good question. How big is it? Yes. These are very important questions. You want to know about that animal because what I want to do as a zookeeper, I want to create the habitat that is most conducive to the life of this new animal, right? I want this animal to eat. I want it to feel comfortable enough to eat because I want it to grow. I want it to thrive. I want it to feel comfortable enough to reproduce. I want to create a habitat for this animal that it's going to flourish in its fullness so we can watch what happens, right? So God, in giving divine life to human beings as a group of people, first 120, then 3,120, then growing day by day, God said, I want to create the environment that divine life flourishes in, that it grows in, that it reproduces in. And what that is, is the body of believers. It's the church. The church is the habitat for divine life. What we're a part of is way more important, way bigger than just an organization or a, a, a group of people who are trying to improve themselves or a service organization. That stuff happens within the church, but what we are is a habitat for divine life. That's a big thing. It's an amazing thing that the Lord's done. So as, as the zookeeper, <laughs> he's created the habitat of the church for divine life. Okay, so Pentecost. Jerusalem is a town of about 50,000 people at the time. And Pentecost is one of these festivals that you should go to. Um, and so no matter where you live on the earth, you try to make it to Jerusalem as often as you can for the Pentecost and a couple other festivals. And so the estimates are in this town of 50,000 people, 500,000 people were probably here for Pentecost. Can you imagine? Like 10 times the size of your population comes every once in a while to your town. Um, so new life, this divine life was living in 3,120 people, and it wanted to express itself. And one of the aspects of this new life is that it seeks out its habitat, and that it, it seeks New life wants to be with new life. Divine life likes divine life because it recognizes it as the best thing ever. <laughs> and so the spirit inside of me in 2019 recognizes the spirit inside of you and wants to be with that spirit inside of you so that we can experience Jesus Christ together. That is what the church is. The spirit of God seeking out the same spirit in others and joining together to experience him together. That's what we are as the church. That's the habitat for divine life. The results are we get to experience him. And when we do, we end up doing the things that he did. That's just the, how the church works. That's how this habitat for divine life works. You know, and a lot of us, uh, particularly in Colorado, we're like, sometimes we'll hear, you know, I don't need the church. I, I meet God in nature. So I'm just going to go off and I'll be in the mountains. And that's all I need. I don't need to be with one another. And, you know, there's an element to that, that we do learn things that way. Um, we can learn, be with God, but there's something inside of our spirit. It's kind of like if, let's, if a real crude analogy, divine life entering inside of you is a fish, okay? And so I say, I don't really need to be with the water. I don't need to be in, in the habitat. What's going to happen is I'm going to stop going to the habitat, stop going to the water, I'm going to dry out pretty quickly. And you see this, uh, particularly as pastors, we see people do this sometimes and then just, they stop growing, they stop reproducing, and it dries up very quickly. 
part of the way divine life works is it needs to be in its habitat. A fish needs to be in water, and we need to be with one another in this habitat that God has created us if we want to grow. It's a good thing. So back to our story. So it appears that about 3,000 people who received this new life, they stayed in Jerusalem. I mean, this is kind of unheard of. There probably weren't very many of those people, those 3,000 to 120. The 120 probably lived somewhere around there. A lot of them were Galileans, which wasn't in Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem. Um, probably, if I don't know how many, maybe anywhere from 15 to 150 people might have been from Jerusalem and might have had, might have had a house, probably a little place in Jerusalem. But 3,000 of them now have decided to stay. And that's an astounding thought. I don't live here. I'm visiting here. But something happens to where I will give up everything to be here. And so this divine life has entered into me. I'm visiting from 300 miles away, and yet I can't leave it. This, I know I have to be in my habitat, and I don't understand it yet, but I need to hear more about this Jesus guy, and these are the only people that know it. And so I can't go back to my own place because this habitat doesn't exist there. It's an interesting thing to happen. Um, we, I can't leave here. And so what would happen is they would send back these letters home and say, hey, sell all the stuff that I have. Sell our house, sell our livestock, sell our horses, I don't know, slaves, and all of those things, kind of things that you can sell and send us the money because I'm staying. Can you imagine being in some of these towns, getting these letters like from like two or three people um, at the same time? It's like, wait, he's staying there? And they're like, yeah, he's, I, I'm staying here. What, it's worth it to, for me to lose everything because this divine life inside of me is so much more important, and it has to grow. Um, the life of God living inside of them compelled them to give everything. And so to be a part of the early church, that's kind of what everyone did because everyone saw well, none of this stuff is very important um, as long as this new life inside of me is growing. And that's why they started calling each other brother and sister um, in the church because we have the same life inside of us. This is more than just being friends or acquaintances or people I go to church with. It's, no, divine life is living in me. And the fascinating thing as we sit here in 2019, the same divine life that lives in me is the same life that was in Peter, the same life that was in these 120 and these 3,000 people. It's the same thing. And we'll experience that on the other side, but uh, it's a fun thing to think about. Okay, so that's what's going on. This new habitat has, has developed, new habitat for divine life in Jerusalem. There's all, it's the only place it exists. So I'm going to give you a quick history of what, what happened. Um, one day, Peter and John, they, they used to go up to the Solomon's column. Oh, did we get the Solomon's column made? That's where they would meet. They would meet in houses and throughout in, in, in regular life. And then this is a picture of Solomon, Solomon's Colonnade. It was kind of like on the back part of the temple. And it wasn't used very often. But when you have like 3,000 people coming every day to a place, you need a place that's big. It keeps you out of the rain. It probably keeps you in the shade and the heat. Um, so that's where they would go. And it's interesting. The apostles would teach. And they would talk about Jesus. They weren't talking about their favorite pet theology. They weren't talking about these, uh, you know, the controversial stances and all these things. They didn't have the scrolls that they were bringing out. They didn't have access to that. Peter probably couldn't even read at this point by a lot of accounts. And so they weren't, like, dissecting any, like, minutia. They were talking about Jesus. And they had a whole lot of people who didn't know Jesus. But then you've got these 12 apostles who just lived with him for three years all the time. And so they're asking questions about Jesus. And they're telling stories about Jesus. They talked about Jesus all the time. If you want to find unity with people who may disagree with you on a lot of other subjects, talk about Jesus. That, that's where unity comes. So 
Peter and John are walking up to Solomon's Colonnade up the steps, and there's this beggar that kind of everyone in Jerusalem knows. He must have been around for a long time. Sounds like he's a character from the story. Uh, so everyone knew who he was, and they were begging from, he was begging from Peter and John. And Peter looked at him and said, you know, silver and gold, I don't have any of that. But one thing I do have for you is, uh, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. <laughs> so he stands up, starts jumping around and yelling, and everybody knows him. And so it's like this undeniable thing. And so they're looking at Peter and John, and they're like, whoa, they're doing the same things that Jesus did. And so we see an influx of people as a result of this, even more than the 3,000 and the people that are being added daily. So we're looking at, it says at the end of this story, there's like 5,000 men. And it's either saying that they were added to or they were in total 5,000 men. So we're probably looking at a minimum of 10,000 people in the church at this point. <sighs> I'm talking fast. I'm trying to jam a lot of stuff in here. Um, so the Sanhedrin starts getting really nervous. The Sanhedrin is like the religious leaders who have a lot riding on this religious system working for them. Um, and one, one thing that annoys them is every time they talk about Jesus and heal somebody, they always refer to, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, the one you guys killed. You'll see that repeated over and over again. Jesus Christ, the one you guys killed. And they're, they're talking about it a lot. And the Sanhedrin don't, don't love this. Um, they don't come off well in that story. And so they bring them in and they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they say, who are we supposed to obey, God or you? Um, there's a boldness that comes with this divine life. Um, and so they go back and they start doing it again. And eventually they get, all get arrested. The 12 get arrested. They go to jail. And that night an angel comes and frees them from jail and locks the door back behind them so the guard doesn't even know what's going on. Then they go right back to Solomon's, Solomon's porch and start preaching again the next morning. And so the Sanhedrin are really upset about this, but they don't know what to do about it. And so this wise man named Gamaliel stands up and said, hey, lots of these messiahs come and go, and they just fizzle out. If we just let it fizzle out, it'll fizzle out. But if it's the Lord, we don't want to find ourselves fighting against God. So why don't we see what happens here? Which was a very wise thing. It's, it's a good thing to think about in a lot of areas of life. Um, you don't want to end up fighting against the Lord. So let's see what happens. Um, so as a result of this story of the angel letting them out and the Sanhedrin leaving them alone, then another influx happens in the church. So we're probably up to about fifteen or 20,000 people. Remember, we're in a town of 50,000. Um, there's an issue with the Greek-speaking widows are saying, we're not getting as much food as the Hebrew-speaking widows. And so the 12 apostles appoint these guys they call the seven, who are like the blessing team, who uh, get to decide how to, how to spend our funds and how to distribute the things to people who need it. Um, if you're interested in being on the blessing team, come see me sometime because we have a couple spots open. It's a fun thing to do. Um, so as a result of the peace that results is at the end of that, there's another influx. So we're looking at about 25,000 people that are probably part of what they call the way, this new habitat for divine life. So a man named Stephen starts arguing with people in the Libertine Synagogue or the Synagogue of the Freedmen, and no one can stand up against this guy's arguments. Um, and so the Sanhedrin don't like this either. So they end up conspiring against him to say he blasphemed, and they stone him, and they kill him. And then right then, they start persecuting everyone. And so a fascinating thing happens here. Persecution comes to the church. You know, a guy named Saul was one of the people doing this, who later turned into Paul. But they came, and they'd go door to door looking to see if you were a follower of Jesus. And if you would, they would imprison you or stone you or try to do something to you to punish you. And so people began to scatter all over Judea. They'd go into Samaria, which were typically their, their enemies, but what would happen is I just, I've been a part of this habitat for, you know, one to eight years at this point. It's been about eight years since it started. 
I can't live without this at this point. You know, I, if the fish inside of me, I can't, I can't go somewhere where there's no water. So a lot of, you know, most of these people weren't from here, so they have places to go. But I imagine a lot of families would get together and like, hey, I can't live without you guys. So let's, let's decide on a place near our homes where we can all kind of go and reestablish this habitat. And so as a result of this persecution, the habitat for divine life got established in all these places all around the Judea within like a, about a 300-mile radius, which was amazing. And so you start, start to see it happen. And so Jesus begins to be known experientially through the body of Christ in these habitats all over the place. And so we wonder how evangelism happens. And in, in, in this sense, it happened this way. It's hard to watch a group filled with divine life love each other well and experience power and walk around with joy and singing and smiles on their faces and not want to know what's going on. So that's how the church worked. People became curious watching this life that they lived and would go up to them and say, what is this? And the answer is, this is the life of Jesus Christ, divine life living in its own habitat. Would you like to come and check it out? <laughs> and it helps when you throw a couple healings and miracles in there uh, to bring people, because that's, that's what, how it happened. So that's how it got spread throughout. In, in the midst of this, Saul gets saved. He uh, starts planting churches places. Uh, Peter has a vision in Joppa where a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, which was unheard of to these guys, the Holy Spirit came on him just like he came on the people at Pentecost. And they watched that happen. And they're like, Jesus is so much bigger and likes way more people than we thought he did. Um, so that opens up a lot of eyes. And then what the, an interesting thing starts happening in this place called Antioch. Antioch's about 300 miles, like north, north, northwest of Jerusalem. And what the different thing about Antioch is, Antioch is a Greek city. It's the third largest city in the world at that time, about 500,000 people. And all the places that the, this habitat had been transplanted, it still looked pretty Jewish because it came from... Jews, even the people from all over the world who were in, in Pentecost that stayed, they were still Jewish. So if you were a Jewish person used to Jewish customs, you could enter most of these churches and feel pretty at home because of the way things work, just the culture. But something happened in Antioch, the gospel just set fire. <laughs> and soon the Gentiles way um, outnumbered the Jews. And that church, that habitat, started to look more Greek than it did Jewish, which was a shocking thing. It's hard for us to get, wrap our minds around, but that was a very strange thing because in their mind, everybody knew that God is Jewish and God does things the Jewish way. But here's these people in Antioch that don't know anything about Judaism. They don't know Moses. They don't know these people. And, but yet the Holy Spirit has entered them the same way it did with them as well. So Barnabas went to check these people out and they're like, whoa, this is different. So this question they had, that, and they, this is a question that we have in 2019, and Susie talked about, you know, the differences between the ones and the threes, the peripheral things that we argue about, but the really one thing that really matters really comes up here. And so, when a church popped up that looked more Greek in culture, it, the culture, the dress, the sense of humor, the cleanliness, the morals, etc., it was very perplexing to everyone. Could this be, could the habitat of God on earth not look Jewish all the time? It's an interesting question. It, it's a no-brainer for us, but for back then it was, it was not at all. Could God make his home, his dwelling place in Antioch amongst people who did not, and fill in the blank, we've all got our stuff that we don't think works. But for them, it was 
Could God make his dwelling place among people who don't wash their hands before they eat? Who don't say grace for their food? Who interrupt when the teachers are talking? Who make questionable jokes, maybe, that don't fit your Jewish sense of humor? Um, Who are uncircumcised? It's something we don't understand either, but it was a big, big deal. Could God make his home among people who are uncircumcised? Maybe have long hair. Maybe have beards or no beards. Here's an interesting one. Maybe they liked Caesar. If you're a Jewish person, Caesar is a, an oppressor, and we all hate him, right? Um, if, if somebody, we, you end up at Antioch, and maybe that's not a big deal, and they liked Caesar. That's an interesting thought. Maybe they were slaves. Maybe they had slaves, and we were opposed to that. Maybe you run into, hey, this guy's got three spouses. That doesn't come up very often in Jewish culture, but here when, you, when, the, when the gospel starts getting spread other places, whoa, we've got to ask these questions. Are these peripherals or are these legit? Can God do that? Or even having a, the, the, the habitat of divine life being amongst the people who've never heard of Moses, who don't know what the Ten Commandments are, who think David is somebody who's a soccer player, you know, <laughs> who don't get these, these things. And it just it has never occurred to them. But then they have to sit down and say, okay, the peripherals seem to be a whole lot about what and how. But the number ones, the primaries, it's about who. Divine life has entered these people, and God has chosen to put his Holy Spirit inside of them. And so we have to ask ourselves, how, does, how, do, we, how do we handle this? Do we trust God to put his Holy Spirit in the people that he wants? And can the habitat look what it's supposed to look like? Right now, we're on 1601 South Clarkson Street, and there's a habitat specifically for this area, for this culture, for our people. And our, our goal in the habitat is to let that kind of uh, to happen. I mean, there, there are parameters and all those kind of things, but Jesus is the person we're concerned with. And so our culture kind of can look different, but we're, our focus is still Jesus, right? And that's what our, the habitat in 1601 South Clarkson Street, that's what we want to find out what it looks like. And that's why we gather. We gather to be the habitat of divine life. So we're in a four-part series, and I started this long before. uh, I'm supposed to do the benediction, so I'm going to talk about the benediction now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The benediction, when we gather together, the habitat is, is formed. The habitat is re... Jesus said, you know, when he uh, gave the bread and the wine, he said, when Paul's talking about it, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And remember, like as opposed to dismember. You know, when we leave, we kind of separate. But when we come back, we remember Christ here together, the habitat of divine life. And so when we say the benediction at the end of every service, it's a blessing as we go out. You know, if, if we're using the fish analogy, the fish is leaving the water for a, for a time until it reunites itself again. So it's a blessing until we're back together in the, the natural habitat of divine life. We bless you as you go. And we, we pray that, that we're not waiting till next Sunday to be in that. You know, so, you know, that's why we have groups and that's why we're, you know, we meet together throughout the week. We're reuniting in that way and the habitat doesn't have to be in this building. It has nothing to do with the building. It's the people gathering together. So in the midst of allowing divine life inside of us to rest and grow and thrive in the habitat God has created for us. In the midst of us sometimes screwed up people who happen to house the life of God, life of God within us. This is a great privilege and it is a great honor. 
And what a witness to the world around us, even on this block, that we are the dwelling place of the life of God and the habitat for divine life, even here on 1601 South Clarkson Street. Anybody have any questions? You always laugh. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, we're so thankful for your death and your resurrection and that you don't hover and just visit temporarily anymore. We're thankful that you long to live with us permanently. And we're thankful that you have designed the perfect habitat for us to flourish, for us to grow, for us to reproduce. And that you're so attractive that when we just live the life of you, divine life here on this block, that you would make us attractive to everyone. That you could pull people into the forgiveness of sins and divine life living in us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.